Welcome to A Seat at the Table, a podcast bringing together feminism, dinner parties, music and food. I'm Alex, your host, the creator of Spare Ribs Club, an intersectional feminist book and supper club which explores feminism and social justice through literature, art, music and food. Each episode, I invite our guests to take us through their perfect feminist dinner party, three feminist icons as dinner guests, three courses and three tunes being played on repeat. This week, I'm very pleased to welcome Jyoti Patel. Jyoti is an author and winner of the 2021 Murky Books New Writers Prize. An extract of her debut novel, The Things That We Lost, was chosen as the winning submission from over 2,000 entries, a competition that aims to discover unpublished, under, underrepresented white writers aged 16 to 30 from the UK and Ireland. Jyoti is a graduate of the University of East Anglia's Creative Writing Prose Fiction MA and was selected as one of the Observer's 10 Best New Novelists for 2023. Her writing has previously been published as part of We Present's Literally series and in the anthology for the 2022 Bristol Short Story Prize for which she was shortlisted. Thank you so much, Jyoti, for joining us today. Hi, Alex. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to chat to you today. So let's get started. Which three guests are you inviting over for your dream feminist dinner party? Okay, so I've got three incredible women here. Um, the first is Rennie Edo Lodge. Um, I'm sure lots of people will know her name from her amazing book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. Um, it sort of was everywhere a few years ago off the back of everything that was happening with BLM. Um, and I, I read it back in 2017 when it first came out. And um, I chose her for my for my dream feminist dinner party because when I read, um, I think it was particularly the chapter called, I think it was called The Feminist Question in, in her book. Um, I remember reading it, you know, I was probably about 25 at the time, and it was the first time I'd felt like I was reading everything that I'd felt but I didn't know myself how to articulate when it came to like white feminism and the way that I'd seen feminism play out um in in circles that I'd been in too where I always felt like I was sort of on the outside of it um and um she talks a lot about intersectional feminism in her in her book and it's done in such an accessible but detailed way and like I say I felt every line was exactly how I'd been feeling at the time and it really sort of um validated a lot of stuff that I was feeling but then also expanded my mind to think more critically about feminism and intersectional feminism and white feminism really. Um, I've come back to it a lot since I first read it in 2017 um, and it's hugely actually informed my own writing too like um, I think I started writing my novel probably around the same time I was reading that book and um, it basically gave me the bravery to go and write about things that I didn't feel like I, I could have been writing about um, if I hadn't read that book. A lot of it to do with sort of race but also also to do with sort of intersectional feminism hmm. um, and how about your second guest so my second guest would be Jaya Bandesai now she um was a British Gujarati woman who lived and worked in northwest London I too am a British Gujarati woman who uh, I mean I lived and grew up in northwest London um, and my novel set there because it's got a very very um special place in my heart that sort of pocket of Brent and Harrow um, and she, like me, also had the intersection of being part of the East Afri African Indian diaspora. Um, so my parents came to the UK via Kenya, even though, you know, our heritage is Indian um, and Gujarati specifically. She too spent time in East Africa. She was in um, Tanzania. 
for a while. And she's a really remarkable woman. Um, she basically came to the UK and was working in a some sort of, I think it was like a photo processing factory in Northwest London. And at the time, the conditions were really, I mean, there was a lot of inequality and institutional racism in these places. And a lot of sort of bosses who were running these factories saw this huge influx of South Asian women and just thought we can pay them less and treat them more unfairly than we would um, the rest of our staff, essentially. So she was told to do some compulsory overtime last night, sorry, last minute one night. Um, and she was like, nope, not doing that. And used some very beautifully colorful language, telling her boss that he's basically running a zoo and that she's a lion who could bite his head off and walked out and led a strike um, to process her and her fellow workers treatment. And it was called the Grunwick photo processing factory and the Grunwick dispute then. And it was in sort of 1976, 77. So she led strikes in an epic two year picket from like 76 to 78, traveled the country. The picket grew from like a few hundred to several thousand. I think there was about 20,000 people marching near Dollis Hill in 1977 near the, um, near the factory. She campaigned for years and basically defied every stereotype of the time of the passive South Asian woman, um, just refused to put up with the conditions that she knew that others wouldn't tolerate. And she, of, of course, shouldn't tolerate either. And she would definitely be invited to my feminist dinner party just because she's like such an incredible person. And there is a gorgeous um, portrait of her actually at the, the National Portrait Gallery, which I would recommend people go and look up online taken by David Mansell and it's just of her it's black and white photo of her like standing in front of a line of policemen in like a sari and a handbag and a little cardigan their arms are crossed and they're all looking at her like down at her literally and she's looking up at them with her arms crossed back and it's just I think that photo basically summarizes everything in her essence like the quietitude of her but the power of her at the same time and I mean, she also shares a name with my grand. My grand's also called Jerben. So it's just a little bit of an extra sparkle there. I love that. And I I think that a lot of our listeners wouldn't have necessarily have heard of her. Um, so that's really lovely kind of addition. And how about your third guest? So I don't know if I'm breaking the rules here, Alex, but I have chosen a fictional character for my third guest. I know you said dead or alive. And I mean, I sort of took that. Um, I, I sort of I took that as far as I could go by by bringing in a, a fictional character. So, I've chosen Agnes from Maggie O'Farrell's book Hamlet, which is a novel. Um, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous novel, um, and I'll just give you a very brief overview to understand her character. So, it's basically a novel that is a fictionalized account of how William Shakespeare's son Hamlet died. There's very little information about who Hamlet was, how he died. Um, and Shakespeare, like, obviously, he had the play Hamlet. Um, but Maggie O'Farrell sort of extrapolates and imagines um, a scenario and, and, like, the family of William Shakespeare, his wife, who, who we know as Anne Hathaway, and then Hamlet, his son, and Judith, the, the sister, and how Ham, Hamlet dies. Um, and really powerfully instead of focusing the narrative on Shakespeare who by the way is not even named he's sort of reduced to his his service providing abilities he's called like the glover's son or the bard um, or the latin tutor which I thought was so powerful um, so instead of Maggie O'Farrell sort of putting it the narrative from his perspective or even the perspective of 
Hamnet, um, who's dying, she chooses to sort of have this close third perspective, mainly from the lens of Agnes, the mother, who we would have known as Anne Hathaway. Um, and she's incredibly playful with the story, like Agnes's character in particular, you know, when we meet her at the start of the novel, she's like emerging from these woods with like a kestrel on her arm and William Shakespeare is sort of watching her from the inside of a building. And immediately like she's the one with all the agency and he's the one sort of relegated to like, firstly, not even having a real name, but then secondly, like watching her and being sort of the passive person in the in the um, encounter. And she's the one who like first reaches out to touch him and first kisses him. And she's very like a very strong, almost otherworldly and magical character um, in a way that's really not coveted by the rest of the people in the novel and not at all admired but in a way that really marks her apart. And she leans into that and like the power of it. She's just like an absolute force of the character. Um, and then there are these like very quiet everyday acts of feminism, like the quotidian and domestic um, ways in which she sort of asserts herself and her power. Um, and I, there was a really nice actually quote by Maggie O'Farrell I read, I think it was like on a Waterstones blog where she says that like Anne Hathaway, so the character of Agnes was always sort of like, talked about as this illiterate peasant who lured a boy genius um boy genius of Shakespeare into the into a marriage that he regretted and she said that she was really distressed and angered by that view of her and she wanted more than anything to ask readers to forget everything they thought they knew about Anne Hathaway and to open themselves up to a new interpretation um which I loved and like one of my favorite parts of the novel as well is that when you know through the novel most of it William Shakespeare's sort of like struggling to to make a name for himself and she sort of looks at him and she has this sort of magical uh, like way about her and she looks at him and she can see I'm going to butcher this because it's written so beautifully but she can see like all the words and potential inside of him and she can see what he's destined for even before he can um so yeah she's one of my favorite ever feminist characters in a book um so she would 100% be invited with Jaya Ben and myself and you and Rennie for my for my dinner I love that. And so these are very kind of varied guests and you've chosen them for very different reasons. Do you think that they would get on? Do you know what? I think they would. I mean, I think they would. We'd all find things in common to talk about. We'd all, you know, I think we'd have a very interesting conversation. Um, and Agnes is very like, like I say, she's she's sort of got her garden and brews like potions and is quite medicinal. So I'd want to ask her for a few little um lotions and potions and I could learn a lot from Rene and I just want to know a lot about about J.R. Bendessa as well and um you know being a British Gujarati woman from northwest London by East Africa like she like being able to like talk to her about the time in which she was here in the UK and when she moved her in the UK um you know my novel is set in that in that moment actually of history so I think I would definitely cozy up to her towards the end of the night and just want to know about her whole life but yeah I think we'd all get on definitely and where is this dinner party being held so that's a great question um we would hop on because we're all we're all British so we would all meet at King's Cross <laughs> and we would hop on the Eurostar and head up to Paris get off at Gare du Nord and about a five or six minute walk away in the tent arrondissement is a beautiful brasserie called Brasserie Belanger. And I discovered this place about a year ago now. Might have been, 
yeah, no, I think it was about a year ago with my best mate. We we're in Paris and we stumbled across it. And it is literally my favorite restaurant in the entire world. And I know that's a really big statement to make, but it's sort of like this sprawling green brasserie on an intersection. Um, like I say, like quite in the center of Paris, just past Gardenal. And it's like the staff are just incredible. Like the waiters are just so much fun. They're so warm and lovely. They're all sort of like, I, I remember a lot of them being like Moroccan French or Algerian French. And they're just, they were so warm and there was such a vibe and the food was just insane. Like it was beautiful food, um, beautiful ambience. We, I think we had a five hour dinner there the first time we went, my friend and I, because we just didn't want to leave. And yeah, it would definitely be held there. And I think it's also very, I mean, I'll come on to the food in a bit, but it's going to be an Indian three course meal. And I think it's very much like um, reflective of me and my identity that we're going to be what three, five, five British women in Paris eating Indian food. Because, <laughs> um, you know, I'm British Indian and I was born in Paris. So it's a nice, I feel like it reflects my identity, all the different facets of my identity. And what tunes are going to be playing at the speakers um, at this brasserie? So this was actually the hardest part, if I'm honest, Alex, because I love music and it was so hard to just pick three songs. But after much de deliberation, um, the first one I play is Billie Eilish's My Future. Um, it's a beautiful, quiet, but powerful song. Um, and it's really, the lyrics are just stunning. It's, it's about being, the idea of being in love with a future version of yourself and putting yourself first. And I first listened to this song probably about six or seven months ago, and it came to me at the perfect moment in my life when I needed to hear it. Um, and like I say, it's just very much about like being a person who's looking forward into your life and saying, I'm choosing myself and I'm choosing my future. And I think as women, like often, you know, particularly when we get to our 30s and 40s, a lot of a lot of um, the focus then is around kids and about doing the, what's best for your family and all of this stuff. And I just love the message of saying, no, I'm in love with my future and my potential. And I think as an artist, it was particularly moving for me. Um, so it's one of my favorite songs. Um, I've really gotten into Billie Eilish, if I'm honest with you, in the last year. I feel like I'm a late bloomer with her, but her music is just like, it's more than music, I think, what she creates is really powerful. And how about your second tune? Um, my second tune is an absolute anthem. It's Lizzo's Truth Hurts, which is such an empowering and fun song. I think it's a really good example of like accessible feminism, like Lizzo's music. Um, you know, when I hear like my little nieces and cousins and stuff singing along to her, I'm like, I'm glad that subconsciously they're like digesting these messages of just doing you and being unapologetic and just like not waiting for romance or you know whatever it is that we're told to wait for as women just getting on and having a great time um I also first heard it well I first I'd say I first fell in love with this song um when I saw it in a Netflix film I think it was released in 2019 and again like Billie Eilish's song My Future this film came to me at the perfect moment when I really needed it it's called Someone Great it's got Gina Rodriguez and Dewanda Wise in it it's a beautiful film about a woman who basically um, has been with her partner for like 10 years and because she gets a job in another part of America, she, they just decide to amicably break up, but it's heartbreaking because it's like, they're so in love and they want to be together, but they just don't want to do long distance. And it's it basically follows um, Gina Rodriguez's 
um, life through a day with her two best friends when she's just like, it's my last day and I just want to have the best time. And it's such an empowering, beautiful, again, accessible look at feminism. And um, Lizzo's song, Truth Hurt, is like, Truth Hurts is in a really pivotal scene, like near the start um, of that film. So I'd really recommend everyone watch that because it's great. I love that film. I think, um, yeah, it's just a very kind understanding of relationships ending and and being a single woman and friends supporting and and all of that and it's quite a yeah it's a great film how about your third tune well I couldn't be on this podcast and not mention the the ultimate queen of Beyonce so she obviously has to appear and I picked her song all night um which at first listen you know I, I've been in love with this song for a few a good few years now it features in my novel too there's a lot of music and a lot of food in my novel and this is one of the songs that, that I, I write about but um at first listen it, it could seem to be you know a, a song just about you know reconnecting with an unfaithful lover or a lover that you've been away from but I actually had a really beautiful moment with this song probably about two or three weeks ago because I'm in the midst of writing my second book and I've been struggling to sit down and sort of break through um, sort of the barrier and the wall, whatever you want to call it with this book um, for, if I'm honest with you, a couple of years and something just unlocked in me recently and I've just been able to really sink my teeth, teeth into it and get get on with it. And I was sort of up really, really late until about three or four in the morning writing, just like in a frenzy of not being able to stop. And when that happens, when you're a creative, you really hold on to that when you're like so full of energy and you just can't stop writing. And the next day I was like super sleep deprived and I was like getting ready, showering, like putting on my makeup, etc. Listening to this song and I was like, it could be about getting back with an unfaithful lover, but it could also be about reconnecting with like a lost part of you or reconnecting with your art as a creative um, and I was listening to the lyrics that morning thinking this could be about me like it could apply to how I felt last night when I was so grateful to be back at a place where I'm able to write and I'm back in love with with the story that I'm telling um, so I think it is again a very empowering um, beautiful song um, if you look at it just you know how it's meant to be read um, but also if you look at it from the lens of like a creative who's fallen back in love with their art, I think. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's just like one of my favorite all time, all time favorite songs, All Night by Beyonce. So you've got Beyonce, Billie Eilish, Lizzo playing at Brasserie uh, Boulanger in Paris. What's being served first? Okay, so it's a, it's a Indian feast, or I should say a South Asian feast, and I'll tell you why in a minute, but, um, the first course is idli and dosa with coconut chutney and sambar, which is basically like, if anyone doesn't know, I feel like, God, I'm really going to um, struggle to, to articulate this, but it's, it's like little rice, I, I don't know if they're called hoppers, idli is like a little rice cake thing, like a flat rice ball, um, and dosa is like a gorgeous, savoury, like, crepe vibe, um, and it's traditionally served in the south of India with coconut chutney and sambar, which is like a beautiful orange dal with like little bits of vegetables in there and it's traditional um in the south particularly in like Bangalore to have this for breakfast I lived in Bangalore for a couple of years growing up and then spent most of my summers there from like I don't know like eight until 22 or something so it was what we'd eat every morning for breakfast and it's one of my yeah one of my favorite dishes so we'd start with that um have you had idli and dosa before Alex 
I have. So I uh, have spent a fair amount of time in India. I lived there for a few months in New Delhi and I also traveled around South India. So I know Italy and Dosa very well. Um, and yeah, you've described it well because Italy is soft, kind of little white pancakes and Dosa is the kind of big, crispy, crepe. Exactly. Sometimes exactly. Filled. Um, but that's a delicious starter and it's also fairly light it's not kind of super heavy it's quite exactly exactly I'm really glad you know where we're going with this Um, (laughs) but yeah it's delicious if anyone hasn't had idli and dosa I would recommend heading up to like maybe South Hall in um, if you're in London and going and trying some because it's just beautiful it's just absolutely beautiful food so we'd start with that we'd then move on to my dream main course which is also Indian so it's chili paneer dal makhani which is a gorgeous, rich, normally cooked over like 24 hours, a rich dal with loads of butter in it. And oh, it's just gorgeous. Garlic butter naan and then pilau rice. And I think this is all quite self-explanatory, but it's just a gorgeous, you know, you've got a lovely rice, you've got some lovely naan, you've got a, um, what my gran would call a gator, which is like, you know, lentils and some protein and then some very naughty and delicious chili paneer as well. So that would be my main course. Have you, have you tried much of um, anything there? Yeah, all of that. I mean, oh, good. Chili, paneer, chili paneer is my favourite. Me it's too. <laughs> delicious, very, not very healthy, but delicious dish. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, yeah, dal makhani, I, I think it's similar to black dal, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, it and is. I have made the dishoom black dal, which takes about 48 hours, but is with huge amounts of butter and... Um, is super silky and smooth and and um is is worth the amount of hours that you put in but of course because you're doing this at uh, a brasserie you don't need to do any of the prep or the cooking you just kind of arrive and this you know 24-hour dal makhani is there for you absolutely <laughs> <laughs> absolutely and um yeah I mean it's just it's my if I'm going out to eat Indian food like I like a you know a, a restaurant this is what I'd I'd order I think as a as a you know if I'm sharing with someone um or even on my own sometimes you know it's good to good to stock up on the paneer um so yeah that would be my main course and then moving on to my dessert actually I, have you ever tried ras malai I have but I think it's something that a lot of our listeners might not have done so yes. it would be yeah good to explain what the t- most delicious pudding is absolutely so I don't have much of a sweet tooth but my parents are unfortunately diabetic so my brother and I are very much like savory people but the I we're not talking about chocolate I will eat heaps of chocolate but apart from that I'm not really like a dessert kind of person Ras Malai is my one exception if I see it on a menu it is it is happening um so my my dessert is going to be Ras Malai with traditional Gujarati chai next to it um and when I was googling this for some to sort of figure out how it's made I was absolutely shocked because I in my 31 years of eating this thought it was like basically like if you imagine like a Victorian sponge cake that's then sort of soaking in the most gorgeous rus, which is like a, a milky, syrupy, sort of sweet, creamy, rich saffron carb- cardamom infused sort of liquid. Um, I thought that's what it was. But upon researching, I realized it's actually instead of it being like a, a cake, like a Victoria sponge vibe, which it has a consistency of, it's actually paneer or like a kind of cheese dumpling, which is then soaked in this beautiful a liquid which was a real shock to me. And I also discovered it comes from Bangladesh. Um, I, I thought it might be a Gujarati thing, 
um, which is why I say this is like a South Asian feast. Um, um, and I would highly, again, recommend, you know, next time listeners are at a Indian restaurant to check if they, um, or a South Asian restaurant to check if they have Ras Malai on the menu, because it, it is just like I say, saffron, cardamom, sweet, rich, creamy, beautiful dessert. And weirdly, like, it is quite light, even though it's, you know, essentially cheese, like soaking in sweet liquid. <laughs> Um, oh god I've done a really bad job of describing that no, but no, no. trust me it's great <laughs> I think you've described it well it's it's delicious and yeah weirdly like given the kind of the, the ingredients what are you kind of expecting how are you expecting this evening to go you've eaten your incredible food um the sun is setting over Paris are you spending the rest of the night chatting are you going dancing are you going to a bar what's happening next do you know what so brasserie belanger is the perfect place to see the sunset as well because it's like i say on an intersection and the sun sets like beautifully behind it or like in front of it basically um so i think this would be like my first meal at brasserie belanger it would last many many hours we'd be vibing with the staff we'd be soaking in the ambience of paris we'd probably you know sit out on the street because um you know you, there's beautiful seats where you can be the windows are sort of fully open I don't even know if, how they do it but it sort of just feels like you're inside and out at the same time and then we would you know slowly make our way through all this delicious food and then I feel like J.R. Bendesai might be like do you know what it's time for me to head back to northwest London <laughs> um so if Rene and Agnes wanted to hit up the Paris nightlife I would definitely show them a good time um but if they were also like do you know what it's time to head back we'd we'd accompany Jayab and their side back to northwest London and if they if they wanted to carry on the night have an after party at my place in north London they'd be more than welcome to um so it would be one of those nights where you're very low expectations but then it just keeps stretching on and you're sort of you're just sort of um leaking into the next day basically I think we'd have a great time yeah, I think so too. And I don't know. You might surprise yourself with uh, Jay Ben. She may, she may want to be. She may want to be the one who wants to go out. You know what? Now that you've said that, I can so see it. I reckon <laughs> she'll. I reckon Rene and Agnes and me and you will be like, right, it's probably time for Ben, and she'll just be like, no, nah, I'm going to put some tunes on. We're going to rave. <laughs> um, so yeah, I I really wish like I I you know I I first heard about her when I was doing the research for my novel many years ago, and then she recently came up in a conversation that I had um with someone who actually works at Penguin and, and we were talking about my novel and the next novel and Jeb and this I came up in conversation and I sort of started researching her again and I actually asked my parents like do you remember her because they would have been in in northwest London they would have moved to London around the time all of this stuff was happening and they do and you know my dad said I think my his dad knew her um so I really wish I'd have you know I'd have met her mm. she's incredible person and I'd recommend everyone just go and read up about her and like I say look at that gorgeous photo of her um at the National Portrait Gallery what space does she take up in your in your novel the things that we lost you say kind of a lot of your research found yourself looking at her life and her role Um, yeah so she doesn't actually feature in it per se but she I was looking at what was happening around northwest London at the time so my novel is set between sort of 
70s and 80s in Harrow and Brent, and then 2017, 2018. Um, and it's told between the perspectives of a, of a mother and son, a British Gujarati mother and son. And the plot's very much like, um, you know, when the mum, Avni, is pregnant with her son, Nick, um, her husband, Elliot, tragically dies. And then we meet them 18 years later when Nick's about to head off to uni. And it's the whole story is basically his journey of trying to unearth all of these family secrets and figure out who his father was, what his, the love story was with his mother and, and how he died and why his mother holds on so tightly to all these secrets. So it's like a family drama, like coming of age vibes. Um, and I did a lot of research because there's probably only like three or four chapters set in the 70s. And I wanted to get in as much detail as I could about what was happening politically at that time, specifically in regards to like, you know, everything that was happening with like the NF at the time, everything that was happening, you know, that they were like the South Hall riots at the time. And I tried to get in small, I did a lot of research. And when you're writing a novel, you do maybe like pages and pages of notes, and then you summarize them into, into maybe a line or a couple of words um, to try and not be too heavy handed. And unfortunately, Jareben doesn't actually come up in the novel, but I'm, I'm really trying to find a way to get her in my next one because I really want her to be there. And she will definitely be in the next one. Um, but I first came across her, like I say, when I was researching that period of the 70s and 80s. And unfortunately, the, Grunz the Grunswick strikes didn't quite make it into the first novel. But I, you know, the second one is also going to be set with a British Gujarati family um, in London. So we'll see um, how I manage it. But she's definitely going to be, be mentioned in it because she's an incredible person. What does feminism mean for you as a writer a British Gujarati writer who is writing about that community how does your own personal feminism kind of intertwine with your writing do you know what in in terms of the first novel it's a really great question because what I what I found a lot of was there were really varying views when it came to Avni's character so like I say, she's the mother and she holds on to all of these secrets and sort of doesn't let her son in to know like what happened to his dad. And what really I found remarkable when I was going to book clubs and when I was like speaking to, to people who'd read it was they were people who would treat her with such a great deal of compassion and be like, she's a whole person. She is a whole woman. She's not reduced to being just a mother. Um, of course, she's a person. She makes mistakes. She sometimes can be slightly selfish as she should be as everyone should be um but ultimately like I don't want to give too much away for people who haven't read it but ultimately the reason she doesn't tell Nick about what happened to his father is to protect him so essentially what she's doing is she's sacrificing her relationship with her son and demonizing herself in order to protect him and to keep him safe from the pain of knowing what happened and the fact that like so many and particularly like you know like young people from my generation couldn't see that even though it's so clearly <laughs> explored the whole novel is about that um and we're very much like she's such a bad mother she's like you know she's so frustrating and and I found that really interesting and and my small way of, of, of you know talking about motherhood um and feminism in this book was trying to say mothers are complex and they, there is no one way to be a good mother. And I think that sort of feeds into feminism and in our place and the way that we're told we need to perform our identities as women and as mothers and as daughters. And um, that for me was really interesting when I was researching and writing the book, but then also when I was having conversations, because you definitely have people who are like, 
she is frustrating, of course, but her, her you know, they, they treat her with so much compassion and so much grace and they understand her and they see her as a person. And then there are unfortunately readers who just see her as her role as a mother and her failure in their eyes to be a great one. Um, so opening up that conversation, which I have done in podcasts and in radio and stuff, um, has been really good, really, really like um, empowering, I think, to, in order to try and make people sort of interrogate their own views about motherhood and why they believe people need to be perfect mothers all the time because no no person is perfect um so yeah that's I don't know if that's a very long very convoluted answer to your question but I hope that answers it it, it made me think about motherhood and um it made me want to explore like a messy real person being a mother yeah. which everyone is everyone's messy you know all mothers are yeah I think that's I mean it's particularly important to kind of explore that when you're talking about marginalized communities as well kind of expanding what people think of um South Asian women beyond their motherhood beyond how you know their their role as homemakers often in kind of more traditional communities absolutely and that's what I do you know in with the novel I try to sort of subvert all the stereotypes you can think about when you think of South Asian, you know, for example, um, well, South Asians in general, but for example, the dad, um, Avni's father, I remember there was so much when I was writing the novel in the news at the time about the sort of the, the, the I can't remember the exact wording, but the in the North, there were like these rings of, um, the, you know, South Asian men who were being like, you know, predators, etc. And I was thinking about like in the, in the moment of the novel when I was writing it, that was in the news a lot. And I thought, why are we looking at all South Asian men like that? There are so many who are the opposite of that. So I wrote a character who is the most gentle, wonderful, kind, um, understanding, sort of, um, like I say, gentle man. And that's Avni's father, Rohan, the grandfather in the novel, Nick's grandfather, who sort of steps in and is like a father to him um, for, for most of his life. So I tried to like look at the way the media or the way that we as a society in Britain view South Asians and was trying to do the work to, to say, look, we're not a monolith. Like there's so many ways to be a mother, a father, a South Asian mother, a South Asian father. Like there's so many nuances and facets to it. So what's next uh, for you, Jyoti? I, you mentioned that you are kind of thinking or working on a, a second novel. Yeah, so I, um, I'm i really enjoying still like, you know, the novel just came out in January, so I'm still really enjoying the events and meeting readers and talking about the book and the paperbacks coming out in January, which I'm really excited for too. I've just seen the cover, which I'm in love with. <laughs> um, so I'm still, I think, in the season of the first book as such, like going out and promoting it and talking about it. But at the same time, things have slowed down slightly. So I now have the headspace and the physical time to to sink into the second novel and I'm so excited about it and so so like I'm enjoying so much being in the world of the second book um it, this time it follows um a British Indian or British Gujarati um protagonist who's a woman in her sort of early late 20s early 30s just like navigating the world um and I'm just really really enjoying getting to know her and the rest of the characters in the book and it's very different to the first one but there's also that sort of overlap with it being British South Asian family British Gujarati family um so yeah I'm really excited for that I'm excited to you know to write it well Jyoti I think your dinner party was 
fabulous. I love the food. I love the setting. Um, and I thought your guests were uh, incredible that you managed to get a fictional character brought brought her to life. And yeah, I, I, it was wonderful. I always ask my guests one final question, which is, what are you doing on an everyday basis in a small way to become a better feminist, either for yourself or for others around you? There, there are two things. Well, firstly, thank you for enjoying my dinner party. I also had a fabulous time. I hope all my guests did. Um, and there are two small things I do to answer your question. So the first, and I think this is, you know, something that we have an obligation to do as a society, which is educate ourselves. I, anytime there is something happening, whether it's to do with feminism, to do with, you know, race, to do with inequality, to do with trans rights, to do with anything that I feel like I don't understand enough about, I will just sit down for an hour and read and educate myself. And I think it's so important if you are someone who has access to the internet, access to libraries, access to podcasts, to, to educate yourselves. Like I, I think that's the most important thing to, to read and to figure out where you sit and where you, what you feel and why you feel it about the world, just to, to think, you know, I think it's really important to give yourself that space. Um, and secondly, on a more practical level, you know, as an author, I often get asked, you know, three books you recommend. Um, and I could, you know, I have two literature degrees. I could easily talk about Dorian Gray and, you know, Dracula and like all the novels that, I f that made me fall in love with literature and that are seen as great, you know, Dickens and, you know, all, all, the, all the, the writers who are so celebrated in the West. But instead, and this often doesn't go down well, um, but I always choose to talk about contemporary writers from marginalized backgrounds um, because I think it's so important to create space and think about equity and equality and think about like as someone who is a minority who has published a novel which is now sitting on a British, British bookshelf what can I do to bring as many people along with me when I'm speaking about books when I'm speaking about books that I think people should read when I'm recommending literature um, so one thing that I always do on a very practical level is when someone asks me, what have you read recently? What do you recommend? I will always talk about th the recent books I've read by marginalized writers um, instead of talking about the classics or books by, by people that are, that are getting loads and loads of attention already in the mainstream media, because otherwise it just turns into an echo chamber of the same books being spoken about and loved. And there's so many brilliant writers who just don't get the time of day because of the way the industry is set up and the way the media is set up. So that's something that I do. Um, and like I say, it's not always gone down well. I had I wrote, wrote an article earlier in the year about like my top 10 books about family secrets. And I did not include a single classic for this very reason. Okay. Um, and I got a lot of comments about it. And I was like, I can give you 10 books by you know, celebrated Western writers, but I'm choosing not to. These are my favorite 10 books about family secrets by marginalized writers or writers who I feel like need to be in the spotlight for their work. So yeah, that's what I do on an everyday level. Um, and, you know, I particularly this year, you know, I've read about 60, I think 60 books so far this year and 50 of those, over 50 actually have been um, by women. And I think about 55, 56 have been by marginalized communities. So I try and, you know, support support um, women in literature, people of color in literature, people from, you know, working class writers, writers from the LGBTQ community, queer writers. I try and 
you know, do what I can as an author and a writer to support those groups and try and champion them as much as possible. I mean, that's a lovely answer, both kind of practical um, and kind of useful as well for our for our listeners. Thank you so much, Josie, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I had such a good time. <laughs>